Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 127th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest in today's podcast is Jania Stout. Jania is the co-founder of Fiduciary Plan Advisors at Hightower, an advisory firm focused on 401k plan consulting that's responsible for nearly $4 billion of plan assets across almost 120 businesses. What's unique about Jania, though, is the way that she's been able to rapidly grow her 401k practice to $4 billion entirely from scratch over the past five years by leveraging nearly 20 years of immersing herself into the 401k community to build her own personal brand and reputation as a trustworthy fiduciary. In this episode, we talk in depth about the 401k plan consulting model. The way Jania's business operates is either a 321 or 338 fiduciary on a flat fee structure for 401k plans, but tiered to asset levels because plans still benchmark their fees to AUM competitors, what it takes to service and support mid to large size 401k plans with tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars for a fee that itself may be tens of thousands of dollars a year, the tools that fiduciary plan advisors uses to support its fiduciary governance consulting with 401k plans, and the unique stewardship report that Jania built and automated in her CRM to show all of her clients all the behind-the-scenes work that the firm does on their behalf every year as a means to justify why her clients should stick with her and even accept an increase in their fees going forward. We also talk about Jania's own path in growing the 401k business, from getting involved with SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, and doing CE education classes for members of their association, to being active on LinkedIn and leveraging LinkedIn groups as a way to network with other professionals, leveraging the industry's various best firms list to generate more inbound requests for proposal inquiries for 401k plan opportunities, and why Jania was ultimately willing to break away from a prior firm despite a non-compete and needing to start over entirely from scratch in her mid-40s in order to build her business independently the way she wanted. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jania talks about the challenges in going independent, where you no longer have a national brand's name and logo on your business card, and what she did to establish her own credibility, even when the firm was little more than her and just a team member or two. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jania Stout. Welcome, Jania Stout, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here. I'm I'm looking forward to our our podcast today, getting into a topic that I, I've sort of realized in retrospect we've been a little remiss not to cover more effectively. And and the topic is the world of 401k plans. You know, most advisors, certainly that we've talked to, and I think still at the industry at large, are in well, I guess I would call the the traditional financial advising business, we work directly with individual consumers and help them with their retirement insurance and investments and, and all of those domains. And the world of 401k plans, I think for most of us as advisors is, yeah, well, you know, I have a couple of small business owners and I've been working with them for a while and they've got a 401k plan. They said, can you help me with my 401k plan? So I, I did their 401k plan. So I've got a couple hundred clients and like six 401k plans on the side that I've done over the years <laughs> seems to be where most advisors are these days. And 
your whole business is built around the 401k space with, as I understand, now closing in on $4 billion under management. And so I just, I'm, I'm excited to say to talk about what does the financial advisor business look like when you are all in, as it were, on the 401k business and getting into some pretty sizable plans? Yeah. I mean, it's, so I've never been on the wealth management side of it. I've, I've kind of grown up in the 401k ERISA space, but I have worked alongside other advisors, other advisor teams that strictly do wealth management. And so I can, I can kind of see a little bit of the difference, but certainly it's a, a completely different model all the way down from how you service clients to how you charge fees and quite frankly, the liability around it. So to start, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the advisory firm as it exists today, like however you size it, assets or firms or plans, like what is the, what does your 401k business look like today? Yeah. So we're a 13 person team out of Baltimore, Maryland, covering clients really all over the mid-Atlantic and some other places throughout the country. But 13 people we advise on close to 4 billion in assets and about 120 plan sponsor clients. So they would either be for-profit entities or we also do advise on ERISA 403B plans. So not just 401k. So anything that's really covered under ERISA is is where you would find a segment of the market that we would serve. Okay. And so I'm I'm just sort of doing the the napkin math here. 4 billion of AUM or closing in on it, 120 firms that you're working with. So like we're talking about the average firm and plan is tens of millions of dollars. Like that, that's about a $30 million average per, per plan client that you're working with. Yeah. I mean, we have the whole spectrum. I'd say if you looked over the last few years, the year over year growth, our average size clients going to be in the hundred million plus space. We don't turn our back on really any size company or, or plan. ERISA doesn't discriminate based on size. So fiduciary responsibility covers a $1 million plan to a $1 billion plan. So right. it's just, you know what it is, Michael? I think some of the smaller organizations or companies, our service model is super robust. And so it just, you know, small business owners, they may not, really want to go through all the things that we would require them to go through to to hire us. So that's why our it's not that we don't want to serve the smaller end of the market. It's just we might not be the right fit for those small business owners. So can you explain that a little bit more? Like small business owners might not want to go through what it takes to hire you. <laughs> I, I feel like most people say this the other way. Like I don't want to work with the small business owners because I don't want to do what it takes to go through the process with them. And, you know, the, the dollars aren't worthwhile. You seem to have like the reverse rejection thing set up here. So what, like, what, what is it about working with the firm or going through the process that then becomes a, a problem for, for small business firms, or I guess alternatively make, makes it such a good fit for mid to large size plans? Yeah. So, I mean, we do have a minimum fee. So even if it's a small business owner, if they want to pay our minimum fee, we would certainly take them on as a client. But we're going to require a very robust governance process for the oversight of the investments to make sure the plan is in compliance with ERISA. 
And so that requires somebody at that company to answer the phone when we call them, to set up meetings when we need them. And sometimes the smaller business owners, they don't put enough emphasis on that they don't feel, I think, because they're wearing many hats, right? So they don't, they don't have, they don't really have the bandwidth to sit down with us or to go through all the things we want to. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's just we find they don't have the appetite to do the things we want. And if we're going to put our neck on the line and be a fiduciary along with them, we want to make it's got to be a partnership. And we find that the more medium, mid to, to large size clients have that bandwidth and that focus. And that's why we gravitate towards that seg- segment of the market. You know, the size of the plan is an indirect proxy for the size of the firm. And size of the firm means size of the org chart, I guess, basically. So if the plan is large enough, then there's a pretty good chance that, okay, this business might have 50 or 100 or 200 plus employees, which means there is an HR department. It probably even is more than one person. And someone can actually have the primary responsibility of this 401k stuff as a part of as a part of what they're doing and work with you productively because the just the the business and the org chart is deep enough for that to make sense for them. Exactly. That's exactly what I would what what I should have said more eloquently. (laughs) (laughs) So well so then I guess I have two questions. Like what what is typical plan size for you at this point and and then can you at least roughly translate that into how many employees or plan participants there would typically be just to get some understanding of the size of the firms and businesses that you're ending up working with? Yeah, I, I like to I would like to describe it as who do we want to go after? And I would say that market size would be employers that have 500 to 5,000 or 500 to 10,000 ish employees. And then from an asset level, I would say maybe 30 or 50 million to a couple hundred million. And the reason why I like that segment of the market is, like you said, they're going to have a, a deeper bench of HR and benefit professionals that, you know, believe that they can make a difference in the employees' lives. We have larger clients than that. And even though I, I cherish those relationships as well, but it's harder. So, for example, my largest client has about 60,000 employees all over the country. So it's very difficult. One thing that you'll hear throughout the next hour discussion, one of, one of our big focuses is really helping working America feel less stressed. And when you have 60,000 employees all over the country, we can only move the needle so much because we don't have enough interaction with those people. So that's where I feel the most happiness. And I would say our team feels the most happiness is in that 500 to 5,000 range because we can really make a big difference. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And and so help us understand what the business model looks like. I think I want to start with just understanding the business model and then talk more about the the service model. As you said, like it's a completely different business model, it's a completely different service model in, in serving the space. So, you know, and, and I'll call it traditional advisor world, you know, the the benchmark fee is the proverbial one percent. 1% on a million scales down for bigger clients might be higher for smaller clients, but that's sort of our benchmark fee number. So how do, how do fees work in a 401k world where you're, you're talking about tens of millions of dollars, or sometimes even hundreds of millions of dollars 
as opposed to, hey, I got a good client because they have a million bucks. <laughs> yeah. So we are a flat fee advisor. And I would say if you look at the plan advisors across the country that I would kind of term, you know, the elite plan advisors, most of us are flat fee advisors. So our fee is not a basis point fee. And typically most of us and ourselves in particular, we do cap our fees. So that's why going after a billion dollar plan versus a $500 million plan, we actually get paid the same fee. If you look at when we get into our services from a baseline perspective, but those billion dollar plans have greater liability because they're on the radar of, you know, some litigators out there. So I was going to say yeah. some <laughs> certain, certain litigators that have pushed some very high profile fiduciary lawsuits. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, that's why I like that kind of 500 million as kind of a cap. Not that we wouldn't take a plan bigger than that, but I think we don't make more money on it and we have greater liability. So, so yeah, we're a flat fee advisor. Our clients can pay our fee out of pocket or they can apply the plan, our fee to the plan asset. You know, in a perfect world, all our clients would pay our fee directly from corporate assets and not from the plan. And we do have some amazing clients that do it that way. And it's just, you know, we believe that that's the right way to do it, but it's also very acceptable practice for plan sponsors to apply any plan fees to the participants. So, right. And I guess like from the business, at least from a tax perspective, it's, it's kind of the same either way. It's pre-tax dollars from the plan assets or it's pre-tax dollars from corporate assets because it, it is a modified business expense. It's just literally like, is the business going to pay from its pocket or is the business going to pass the cost through to the plan participants and let them pay it out of their pocket. Yeah, that's right. And I think if you look in the last probably five years, our industry has done a better job of educating plan sponsors that if you think about it, most companies pay, let's say, 50% of the healthcare costs for their employees. But most plans, they apply all record keeping and advisory fees to the plan participant. So why why is it that way? It should be the retirement plan should have that same kind of model where maybe the plan sponsor or the company pays, you know, half of the record keeping costs instead of applying it all to plan assets. The industry isn't there yet, but I do think that we are evolving and companies are starting to recognize that 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 might be the better approach for their employees. Interesting, because I, I know obviously, otherwise it's it's pretty easy for any business to say like, oh, here's an expense we don't have to bear directly. We can put it right in the plan and you know rationalize it in our heads as look, the plan participants are paying for because they're getting the benefit. So like this seems reasonable. Right. I can imagine that it's it's hard to convince them to come back and say no, this is really actually something you should consider paying on behalf of your employees. Treat it like the 50% of health insurance costs that you pay as well. Like you're supporting their employee benefit. That's right. We only have a handful of clients that pay the total costs out of their own pocket. So help me understand what typical fees look like. You said you're a flat fee, but I'm, I'm presuming there's still some kind of scaling to this based on the size or the complexity of the firm or the amount of stuff that they've got going on? Or is this literally just like there's one number and whether you're 
20 million or 200 million is the same number. No, I would say in in that aspect, it's similar to the wealth management side. So you're going to have kind of, for us, like we have bands because we have to come up with the flat fee somehow. So it's calculated. And there's a couple of components that we look at when we price a plan. Assets are kind of the natural way of looking at it because A, because that's the best way to benchmark our fees. Because on being a fiduciary, the client has to also make sure our fees are reasonable and the way the benchmarking companies are doing it is based on assets. So we have a flat fee based on the tiers of the asset. And then in our case, what we do, we actually guarantee those fees for two years. And then at the end of the two years, we do a stewardship report for the client, showing them all the work we've done over those two years. And then we ask if, let's say the assets grew by 20 million, we might ask them for a $5,000 raise or whatever it may be. And, but that puts them in control of our fees versus if you do basis points, and the market did what it's done in the last 10 years, we'd all be getting raises without the client actually having any input. Interesting. So I, there were a few things there that, that struck me. One is uh, this thing you just mentioned, uh, a stewardship report where you show all the work you've done for the past two years before you go back and, and sort of say like, Hey, things have grown. Here's, here's the new fee. So tell me more about the stewardship report. I like this. Okay. (laughs) Well, so we break it down into different segments. So we have a segment on compliance. So we'll explain over the past two years, and we have, we've customized our CRM to track all our interactions with our clients. So if we did a project for them, for example, let's say, and this, by the way, happens all the time. So those of you who are interested in what do plan advisors do versus what do wealth advisors yeah, do? Yeah. Our typical day will be basically putting out fires from a compliance standpoint. So we're we're all investment advisors, but we happen to know a lot about compliance and ERISA. So for example, yesterday a client called me and said they had a group of employees that they that didn't make the payroll file and they should have been automatically enrolled six months ago, but for somehow some reason the payroll system didn't pick Oops. them up. Yeah. So that's that's a failure. So we have to fix that problem. So we would be documenting the fix that we're doing. We actually have someone on our team who's an ERPA, so she can re- represent the clients in front of the IRS in doing voluntary corrections. So we'll do a, if it needs to be corrected with the IRS, we'll do that for them. We'll track that in our system and it, that gets fed into the stewardship report. Because I think we all, anybody that works with clients, whether they're a company or an individual, you got to keep reminding your clients all the work you do for them, especially when you're coming back to them and saying, hey, you know, our fees, the time of the two years has expired. We're now going to ask for a raise. So we want to justify that raise by the work we've done, not just because assets grew. So the the compliance part would be in there. Then we do a ton around employee education and advice. So I have three people on my team. Their title is participant success advisors, and their sole job and their salaried employees, their licensed salaried employees, their sole job is to help employees of our companies that we serve. So they do group meetings, they do one-on-ones in person, and we also do virtual advice days. So we give investment advice, but we'll track all those interactions 
they're loaded into our CRM and then that spits out on the stewardship report so that we can say we've had over the two years, we've met with 260 participants in your plan. And we actually get even further on reporting on that. We'll ex- we roll up on a quarterly basis to our clients. We'll tell them what positive impact did we have in those interactions. So that's education. And then the investments will certainly, we track every quarterly meeting. We'll track even quarter over quarter and year over year driving down plan costs. So are we in you know the, the lowest cost share class or the best net deal? So in I don't know if this applies in wealth management, but in the 401k world, sometimes going to the zero revenue sharing fund isn't the best option. Sometimes it's going to the fund that shares revenue, but crediting that revenue back so that what's the best net deal for the participant? It's somewhat complicated. And again, this is kind of the day in the life of a plan advisor. These are the kinds of things that we do. And that stewardship report would reflect all of the positive impact we've had on our consulting to that client. And knock on wood, I've never had a client not approve us getting our fee adjusted. I love it. So you sort of pull these reports out of your CRM that dump these activity line items into these different areas, compliance, employee education, and investments. Like here are the primary domains we're working with you on, and here's all the line item stuff that we did for you over mm-hmm. the past two years. Exactly. And and so what what CRM are you using that does this magical report for you? Well, I'm sure everyone could guess what CRM we use because it's probably used by lots. We use Salesforce, but we did hire a consulting firm that came in and created a custom interface for us because, you know, it is so niche the work we do. And that was definitely a painful process because I'm a big picture person and they made me sit down and the rest of our team sit down and, you know, walk through every little thing we do. Every little line I'm So I, I'm yeah. curious, do you mind sharing, like, who, who did you work with that helped build this? At least if you liked them enough, you're willing to <laughs> mention them or recommend them. So they were called Avanade, A-V-A-N-A-D-E. This was three years ago, three and a half years ago. So we started this November will be five years. So, or four years. Gosh, I can't even. Yeah. So it was like three years ago, but they were called Avanade. But I have a, I think they actually got bought. So I feel bad saying that I should know better, but. We'll put a link out in the notes for anybody that wants to delve deeper and see if they're. Still doing it. If they're deep in Salesforce consulting, I wouldn't be surprised if they just got bought by another bigger Salesforce consulting firm. Exactly. <laughs> they may still be doing the same thing. But for folks who are listening, this is episode 127. So if you just go to kitsis.com slash 127, we'll have a, a link out to the Avanade folks if you want to delve into this further. Because I like, like to me, Jania, the, this is the particular things you would put in the report might look a little bit different for other advisory firms, but I think almost all firms struggle with, we do all this, you know, Gary Clayton calls it the shadow work, like all this work we do for clients behind the scenes that they don't see. Cause actually if we do a really good job, the whole point is we get it done for them and they don't see it. And mm-hmm. then we get to meet with them at the end of the year and they don't realize we did all that much stuff for them because they don't see all the things that happen behind the scenes. And so the idea of, you know, why don't we all get a report out of our, CRM where we hit a button and it says, 
you know, again, the categories might be a little bit different, but here's all the investment management stuff that we did for you, the trading, the rebalancing, the investment committee meetings, the research time that we spent on your stuff. Here's all the financial planning tasks and analyses that we did for you. Here are the advice meetings that we did for you. Here are the just ops administrative back office stuff we did. You know, we processed 42 withdrawals for you and we handled three transfers and, and, you know, get to a similar point where I can just hit my button out of my CRM and I get this report that says, here's all the stuff I did for my clients over the past year so that when I sit down with them once a year, I can I can show them this. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've learned some lessons throughout my career and from kind of hitting the reset button this last time, I learned one of the things that we have to do is continuously share back to our clients what we do for them. They have a very short memory. They may love you, but at the end of the day, they've got to be reminded. It's kind of like that saying that you learn, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. You kind of have to do that same thing on your service model. Tell them what you, how you're going to service them, service them, and tell them how you service them. Yeah. And, and I do find there's this dynamic when you switch from AUM to flat fee or really any kind of what I call fee-for-service model. So monthly subscriptions, quarterly or annual retainers, uh, hourly fees, whatever it is. You know, the, the AUM model, it, as you said earlier, it's got this natural lift. Like as long as you just sit around and don't screw anything up, markets tend to rise, which means your fees tend to rise. Now, right. if you take advantage of that too long and don't do anything more for your clients, eventually people get dissatisfied, say, why am I paying you so much and, and, and start leaving and firing you. But what happens for most firms is just the revenue per client lifts as AUM goes up. It gives them more free cash flow. They reinvest into doing more things for their clients. Then usually they start working with more affluent clients because they're doing more things for them and then minimums start rising in other paths. So like I, I think the the increase in fees and increase in services tends to still happen in the AUM model, but it happens because we get the raise kind of by default. And then we reinvest so that we can show our clients that we're worth keeping around for these rising fees. And in the flat fee model that you're talking about, the whole thing shifts. Like now I've got to ask for every fee increase, which means I don't just get the fee increase and have to justify it later. I have to justify it up front because I have to ask for it and get them to sign off on a new fee where all of a sudden these kinds of stewardship reports or you know client service report or whatever you want to call it in the wealth management context suddenly becomes incredibly useful and relevant to the point that you would make the kind of investment that your firm did, which is, no, we're actually going to have someone come in and customize our CRM so that we can get this report at the click of a button because it's that important to our ability to sustain and increase fees over time. Yeah. And it's a super way to find out how your clients feel about you. Because <laughs> nobody... I get asked when when others have heard that this is how we do our fees, they say, well, how, how uncomfortable is that when you have to ask for a raise? And I said, you know what? It's the checkpoint where we look each other in the, in the face and we say, do you think I'm worthy? And, and I always tell our team, like, look, if we don't deserve that fee, then we, sh- we need to know. And every two years, we get a check-in with our client face-to-face and say, do I deserve this? And you'll know if, if, they, if you haven't been doing your job. So let me ask a little bit more of just understanding what fees look like. You know, I, I mean, I know in the advisor world, like 
a lot of us end up with minimums of at least a couple hundred thousand dollars because that basically means our minimum fee for advisors who set one is usually two, three, five thousand dollars. Sometimes high end advisors go higher. You know, if you're working with the proverbial million dollar client at a at a one percent fee, your typical client pays you ten thousand dollars a year. So help me understand what reasonable expectations are in the 401k plan world. Like what's a, you said you'd had a minimum fee. So like what's a minimum fee for you? And then what's a typical fee if you're actually, when you're actually working with these 30, 30, 50, hundred million dollar plans? Like I just have no idea if we're talking about $5,000 fees or $50,000 fees or more or less. I would say our bare minimum fee, we have to make $10,000. And that would mean, that would be a small client where maybe we do things more virtual because travel time obviously costs a lot of money. So I'll give you an example. I got referred to a whiskey distillery. Actually, might be close to you, Michael. Do they trade in kind? (laughs) Well, it's funny you should ask. (laughs) So my, it's funny, the team always says, Jania always finds reasons to to take on a client. Like either they do something good for the world or they make whiskey. Or I mean, they like do there's something, something delicious for the world. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. So they, they were referred to us by a center of influence, a CPA. And so I, sometimes what I'll do in these smaller cases, this was a startup plan. I will just do what I call pro bono work where I just help them not go in a really bad direction because there's a soft spot in my heart I have for startups because there aren't many providers in the 401k world that want a startup plan. Right. Every, everybody wants them after they've got a pile of assets. Exactly. <laughs> so what are they going to do? They're going to charge them a lot of fees around the investments. So these poor participants are paying like two and a half, three percent, unless you get, you know, the pro bono work from us where we know some providers that I think are priced very well in the small market. They're not ridden with lots of fees. So in this particular case, I said, hey, let me help you. We got them proposals. We got them in a good plan. I even we even help them pick their fund lineup and then we help them with the plan provisions like how should they structure eligibility and match. And I said, "So you guys are good, you know, I'll I'll set you free. If you need me, you can call me. I'll always help you, but I don't want to get paid because if I get paid, that means I need to actually do the service model that we do." <laughs> right? right? Right. If you if you pay me, this has to be full engagement. Frankly, I have to take full liability which means I'm going to put you through my entire process and that's not going to be cost effective for you. Right. And like, so they said, well, no, no, we want you. What does it cost? I said, it would be a bare minimum of $10,000. So this is a little startup plan that, you know, $10,000 was a lot of money for them. So, you know, so that's our pro bono work where I said, when you, when you grow up a little bit to a bigger plan or you have the, the, finances where, you know, the budget where $10,000 isn't going to, you know, hurt you, then certainly give me a call. We'd love to help you. So they did give me a bottle of whiskey, by the way. So I did a employee education meeting there. The owner of the distillery just said, Hey, this is just a, you know, I want you to try it so you can tell your friends. So that's why I laughed when you said, did it involve whiskey? Did they trade in kind? Yes. Fantastic. So, but then from there, I would say, for example, you know, a $10 million plan would probably run around $25,000 flat fee. So you're looking at like a 25 basis points at that point. 
But there's some other things that come into the calculation. And this is really our industry. When I say our industry, I mean the plan advisory industry has really been, and maybe I I bet this has happened on the wealth side too, especially with robo advisors, but we're getting that the whole fee compression issue. And what happens is there's some advisors that enter into the marketplace and they want to buy the business. So they start undercutting everybody's fee. So it used to be that all our services were included in our base flat fee. And then in the last few years, we've been forced to strip it out. Hmm. And now our fees are, so our base fee, so our flat let's say in this case, a $10 million plan is $25,000. Build quarterly. In our case, we, we bill quarterly in arrears. But then we strip out education and compliance projects. So we'll still service our clients for day-to-day issues, but if they need a voluntary correction or they need us to do a full kind of review of something, we do bill an hourly rate. On the education side, then we we'd bill a flat per day fee to have an advisor on site to do education. So, you know, we've, we've kind of had to do that because everybody, our competitors, they would quote fees. Right. Like they'll quote $15,000 to your $25,000 client, even though at the end of the day, then they'll probably charge separately for compliance support and participant education. The rest, they might come back to your $25,000 fee and be competitive, but by then you've already lost the business. Yeah. Or like on the flip side of that, we might've charged 30,000, but that included four days of in-person one all day, one-on-one advice sessions. Right. But they were, our competitors were charging 25,000 and saying that they'd have unlimited education, but they didn't really have the service model to support that. Like we really, as we talk about our team, we're very, I'm the only producer. Well, I'm the main producer on the team. We have another team member who does some business development, but really there's 12 people that support all the clients that we bring in. Whereas most practices have like six producers or six advisors and make six support staff. Like we are completely different and it's good and bad, which I'm happy to share kind of why I think it's good and why I think it's bad. But And so so then... Are there other things that go into the the flat fee determination? Like it sounds like asset tiers is still one component. So the the flat fee kind of sets up to a new tier because you still get benchmarked to AUM fees. Then there's some layers that you may add in. So you may strip down like, okay, we'll do the basic compliance support. But if you've got voluntary corrections, that's now going to be separate. Well, we can bundle or unbundle participant education. So that may move the fee up and down. Are there other like moving parts and levers, you know, in the financial planning world, we sometimes talk about complexity-based fees where we sort of add in fee costs for complexity layers. Is is there a factor of that for you or or is sort of asset tiers and some of the a la carte services effectively cover it? Yeah, the only other component I would say is geographic location. So we have to factor in, we have a lot of clients in New York City, Philadelphia. So I wouldn't say it makes a huge difference, but we do a lot of responses to requests for proposals. That's where a lot of our business comes from in the last few years. And so we know it's in a very competitive market. So we're not going to add a lot of fees if it's if we have to travel, but we might add $2,000 to the flat fee because we know we've got to take a train to New York four times a year at least. You know, So we're, we're not covering all our costs, but 
we haven't got to that point where we're going to bill for travel. I feel like the industry is turning into more of a nickel and diming industry. And I hate that, but you know. Yeah. It, it is fascinating to me though, that, you know, as you noted, like you can charge your flat fee structure, but you still have to at least reasonably align to what an AUM fee would have been because plan either plans will comparison shop you or prudence demands benchmarking. And if most of the rest of the world charges AUM fees, you're still gonna kinda get compared to an AUM fee. You know, we actually we did a similar study on the on the financial planning side of the industry just a couple of months ago, and strikingly actually found the same effect that when we looked at what retainer fees clients pay for advisors that just charge standalone flat retainer fees and then sort of ask them like what's your client's typical income what's your client's typical net worth right which are measurements of ability to afford a retainer fee and then what's your client's investable assets what we found was even standalone non-AUM retainer fees were most directly related to how much the client had investable assets for an AUM fee Right. Because <laughs> I think even in the flat fee world, at least right now, you still get benchmarks to the majority of advisors that are AUM. So you at least you at least have to be in the neighborhood. That's right. You may not be the same and it obviously doesn't scale quite the same, but you, you have to be in the neighborhood. Right. Right. So tell me about what the service model looks like. You know, when when you're charging this ten thousand dollar minimum fee or twenty five thousand dollars for a for a $10 million plan and, and moving up from there, like what do clients get? What do you have to do to service and keep a sizable 401k plan? Yeah. So I'll cover kind of what people typically think of when they're thinking of hiring a plan advisor like us or anyone, you know, it's, it, we would come in, we would first do what I would call like a fiduciary audit, a governance audit. You know, do you have an investment policy statement? Do you have a committee? How often does the committee get together? Are you documenting that prudent process? And, you know, if those answers are, let's just say, for example, no, we don't have any of that. So we would help them put a committee together, who's the right committee members to be on the committee. And then we would introduce them to an investment policy statement that we would ask them to adopt we would run the investments that they have inside their 401k today through our screening criteria. And then based on the output of that, we may or may not make changes to their fund lineup. So that's kind of the, the, the blocking and tackling, you know, the investment advisory piece of it. We are either a 321 or a 338 investment manager. So can you, can you explain those? I think for advisors, not usually in this space, that we don't know what 321 versus 338s are. Sure. So think of 321 as an advice giver. So clients would hire us to give them advice around their retirement investment, the investments offered in their plan. And so we give them advice, but they ultimately make the decision. And so I always like to say, so if they get sued, we get sued. We don't want to get sued, so we're going to help them not get sued. <laughs> so okay. we're advice givers, but we're you know, basically co-fiduciaries with them. Now, there's another level, which is actually the definition of investment manager, which is 338, which means we have discretion over the investments in the plan. And in that scenario, they still have fiduciary liability, 
but it shifts a little bit. So now in that relationship, their duty is the duty to monitor our actions. So our meetings would look and feel the same in the sense that our meeting reports look the same. We put them through our investment policy statement, our monitoring criteria, and then we'd come with this report. And instead of saying, we think you should, our advice is that you map, you know, from this T. Rowe large cap fund to this, you know, American funds, large cap fund, and then they ultimately vote in, in a 338, we say, we're going to map from this fund to that fund. Okay. So they don't actually get a say in it. And you have to be very careful because if they speak into it and they start making it look like they're driving the decision, they step back into that decision-making role. So 338, there's some in the industry or some marketers out there that try to position 338 as a way to give a higher level of fiduciary protection. That's not necessarily true. It's a different level of protection because now the company has different responsibilities. And in that case, it's just to monitor our actions. So I know that was a long description, but... No, that, that's that's really that's really helpful. I mean, I think in our typical advisor realm, this is sort of the difference between, you know, a, a 321 for us is, I guess, essentially a non-discretionary client. Like you're giving them advice and recommendations on what to invest in, but then the client ultimately has to say yes or no about whether they want to move forward. In a 338 realm for... For 401k plans, that's essentially the equivalent of our discretionary management as advisors. Like you have discretion, you control it, you manage it. The client's job is to decide whether you are doing a good job <laughs> or not. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing that's different with us, we don't charge more. So that was going to be my next question. Is, is there a <laughs> price difference in, in 321 versus 338 services? There is not. And I know some advisors probably get upset with us that we don't charge more for 338. Because others do. I'm presuming they say like, hey, uh, well, we're going to take more fiduciary liability, but we're going to charge you more because that's what you got to pay for if you're going to defray this cost. Or, or that's you're right. Defray that's your what they think. Yeah. We think that what we gain in efficiencies kind of levels out the additional liability. Because the implementation of 338 is kind of literally easier and faster when you can just do your analysis and do it, not do your analysis and then have all the back and forth of the investment committee, try to get them buy off on the thing that you're recommending them to do and then help them go forward and do it. Like you just do it. And then you explain what you did, obviously. I actually think, I mean, part of our job, we study these lawsuits and the the cases out there. I think we have just as much risk in a 338 as a 321. We're going to get pulled in either way. So I'd rather have control over the decisions than asking our clients to vote on it. So we have been moving a lot of our clients to a 338 arrangement over the last few years. And if a client asked me what's the best for them, I would say, absolutely, you should hire us as a 338. Interesting. And, and so I guess the, you know, the 321 end, particularly if you don't have a price difference, really just becomes the domain of that subset of, of companies that truly actually just want to be more involved in how this plan is being delivered and what's being done for their for their clients you know they've got a some benevolence view or 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 some other perspective that says they want to insert themselves more into the process and that's why they would keep 321 status yeah i i would say we made a push on this starting about 
a year to 18 months ago. And I don't, I think we've only had one client say no. Most of the end, they don't actually want to be that yeah. involved. <laughs> no, and it's not that they're not, I used to, and I actually wrote an article about this years ago that 321 was better than 338 because you have a more engaged committee. Everybody's got skin in the game and everybody's kind of actively participating. Hmm. But I will tell you, I've completely changed my mind on this because I've seen some of these cases And there's one in particular that I reference when I talk to my clients. When you look at the NYU case, the judge ruled in favor of the defendants, the committee at NYU. However, if you read the judgment, she was really upset with the committee because under deposition, the committee, when they were asked questions like, why did you decide on this share class or whatever it may be, the committee said, well, our advisor told us to do this. And in that case, it was a 321 relationship. And and they tried to kick it to the advisor as though it was a 338 anyways. Yeah. So in that case, you might as well, because then think about it, the plaintiff's attorney in a 338 case is deposing these committee members saying, how did you monitor FPA's actions? Oh, I went to meetings. I looked at their meeting reports. I know I, I could see they were... They were applying the standard of their investment policy statement. So it's not a, hey, I think this fund is better than that fund for this reason. It's more, did our process, were we following our process? So it's easier for a client to defend themselves, I think, under a 338. Okay. Interesting. And and so help me understand a little bit more of what this looks like on an ongoing basis. So I, I get sort of the setup. All right, we just have to figure out if you basically we have to figure out if you're even complying with ERISA and your fiduciary obligations in the first place. So you do your governance audit, you put an IPS in place if they didn't have one, you put a committee in place if they didn't have one, you do an initial screening on their investment selection and you know do some cleanup. So what like what happens then on an ongoing basis? Yeah. So it's funny because I was just talking to We just had our big national conference for plan advisors, and I was talking to some advisors that were newer in the industry, and we were actually talking about 338, 321, and they said, well, what if if you do 338 and you just do investment reviews, you know, how will you – so you don't ever talk to your clients, but once a quarter then, Right. And I'm looking at them, I'm like, oh my gosh, if you only knew. So to answer your question directly, Michael, we talk to clients every single week, which I know kind of usually blows people's minds because they think that, aren't you guys just doing investment advisory work? No, I mean, we, so it's hard to describe, but I would say, look at it this way. We run alongside, we're like an extension of our clients' HR and benefits team. And they're running this 401k plan. And let's say you you can name it, Fidelity, Empower, T-Row, whoever it is, is the record keeper of their plan. There are so many opportunities for errors, you know, whether it's trying to understand their document, whether it's payroll didn't send the right file over, whether it's the record keeper didn't post something when they were supposed to. I think if we weren't there, the client would call the record keeper directly and may or may not get an answer. Whereas when they call us, 
We've had, if you look at our team, we've got a very senior level team. Most of us have been in the retirement business for decades. And most, almost all of us worked at the large record keepers. So I used to work at Fidelity. We've got a bunch of T Row people here. So we make sure everybody's running smoothly, is the best way I could describe it. So that's part of our role is really making sure administration is done. So just payroll problem, right? Because I'm just imagining a large firm, like, mm-hmm. you know, we have a thousand employees, like, oops, we added 27 of them and they didn't get added to the 401k plan in the right manner, which is not a difficult oopsie to happen in a ginormous firm. And now suddenly, like, they just have to actually fix 27 employees with messed up payroll who weren't in the 401k plan, which is technically an ERISA violation. So how are we fixing this? Yes. And they call you and say, Janie, what do we do? We we made a mistake. Yeah. And we're not, obviously we're not attorneys or ERISA counsel. And we know lots of ERISA counsel because we use them quite a bit when we find the errors. But if you think about it, most companies, depending on their size, their benefits folks, you know, are tasked with health and welfare, payroll benefits, 401k. So they're not necessarily experts on the 401k side. And as record keeping fees have been squeezed, those teams have also been squeezed and they're, you know, they don't have as much support as they used to. And it's really, I I can't blame them. And part of it's our job. We benchmark plan fees and we constantly go to the record keepers, hey, you got to lower your fee. And what's going to happen in that scenario is- They're giving less support. <laughs> that's right. So so I, I kind of look at it, you know, those squeezy balls where like if you squeeze one end, the other end gets bigger. Yeah. So it's like we squeeze the record keeping fees and now the on the advisory side, we're forced to do more support. Right. So, but that's that's a big part of what we do. And then we also do a lot on education. So- we probably have about our 20 most engaged clients. We have either weekly or biweekly calls already set up on an ongoing basis where we have a log. And on that log, we're talking about anything that we're trying to work on to fix. So, I mean, it's, I don't, for those who are in in wealth management that maybe are considering going on the plan side, I mean, I love it. I'm a total ERISA geek. I love the complexity of ERISA and compliance it's so broad that it's every day is a new challenge. I've been in the business 24 years and I still learn something every single day. But yeah, we're, we're very in touch with them. But we do have an education strategy meeting with our clients every year. Some of our bigger clients, we have subcommittees where we have a financial wellness committee. So like yesterday morning, I was at a client at seven in the morning meeting with their wellness committee. So we do more than just the the investment part, I would say, is kind of the easy side. Chad, who's my business partner and, and director of investment consulting, he he would probably get mad at me for saying that. But it is <laughs> most cases we're monitoring mutual funds. We do have collectives and some of our larger plans, but in general, it's not, you know, we have a process and we kind of put it through a system that spits out any funds that are flagged to be on watch. So it's not like we're actually, we're not, you know, stock picking or anything like that. So that was, that was going to be my other question actually is, is like whether or to what extent sort of literal hands on investment management is part of what you do. Cause it, in wealth management world, 
saying we have discretion is is literally like we have discretion to buy, sell, and trade. That's that's the discretion part, like hands on investment management. So, to what extent are are you actually like literally managing assets versus using the discretion simply to make changes in the lineup or other adjustments to what the participants pick themselves, but you don't literally manage it for them? Yeah, I would say we don't manage any assets. They're all, we manage the lineup. So under ERISA, you must offer prudent choices to the participants and demonstrate the prudent process. So we, that's what we do on a discretionary basis. The only place I would say we have true discretion on the actual asset would be in the pension side. So we do have pension plans. In the large end of the pension, we actually hire an OCIO to manage that pension asset. In the smaller end, we'll manage the asset. Okay. Okay. And so does that mean for the, so I guess I'm just trying to envision the other layer of this whole, call it managing assets, colloquially speaking, is I have some kind of investment platform. So Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, if I'm on a broker dealer, I use one of their platforms. That's basically like where the money sits. It's quote unquote my platform because it's the one tied to my company and that's where I can trade and execute and do my stuff. So in, in this world where your services are are consulting to the plans and your management isn't necessarily literally managing the assets per se, it's managing the lineup and the investment selection that goes with it. Like, do you have you call it an investment platform that you tie to, or do you just end out in a realm where you get paid directly for the advice and consulting work that you do and you don't care where the assets are aside from helping them pick a provider that's reasonably priced in the first place. That's right. So we don't have we we don't have a custodian, we're not tied to one. All of our plans are at some large record keeper. We are, you know, whether it's Fidelity or T Row or Vanguard as the record keeper and custodian or t- trustee of the assets. If somebody came to us and said, here's $5 million, we would say, okay, I don't know what to do. You know, we can't take your money. We don't do that. So so when does this shift? Because I know advisors that are in the, in I guess we'll call it the small and the micro department where, well, early on, a lot of us literally got paid to sell 401k plans. So we would work with, I know it was popular then, I'm trying to remember, like, Hancock plans and principal and some of the others were like, I literally sell a 401k plan. It would be quote my assets. It would be on my platform. I'd get my basis point trails off of it. I know there are a few advisors that do this through some custodial channels where they take the assets and they manage the assets hands on and they're billing on the assets because they're, you know, their hands are in there touching them. So like when and when or where does this shift happen? where we go from I'm managing these 401k assets hands-on as still occurs in, I think, a number of wealth management firms and even some big 401k providers selling through individual advisors versus this world you're in where, no, no, we just charge our fee and you may have the record keeper pay it to us. But like We don't have an investment platform. We're completely in a standalone consulting realm. Like, where does that shift happen? I mean, I would say it, it happens in as you grow from a micro or small plan to a, a medium-sized plan. Which is what in, in sizing, just because I have no context for what's small and medium. Yeah. So I'll put it – so 
you know, our RIA is Hightower, and Hightower has these offices all over the country. We're, we actually, I own my own business. We're just, we just use them as our RIA. And this will all kind of make sense as I tell you this story. So when I first came to Hightower, the thought process was, hey, we can go to these other Hightower offices that are, you know, almost all of Hightower is wealth management. They're not 401k. Like what a, what a prospecting pool. This yeah. is amazing. Matter of fact, when we selected Hightower, people in the industry were like, why'd you go to Hightower? <laughs> they don't do 401k. And I'm like, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> why I did it. So, but what we found was very similar to a comment you made early on, which is we'd go around to these offices and many of them had between three and 10 401k plans, mostly small businesses ranging from 500,000 in assets to 3 million in assets. And maybe they had kind of their, their biggest client that might've been 10 or 15 million. And in the smaller end, that one to 3 million, they were maybe managing the actual assets as, you know, they may had seven employees. I've seen things where they were basically building, putting them in their own portfolio. So it was a, it wasn't a participant directed plan. It was it was managed by one of these advisors. A lot of the teams that we went and talked to, you know, great people. And they said, listen, you know, this, this world is starting to get too complex for me, you know, unless, so I think for the teams, you really need somebody that focuses on 401k so that they understand kind of what they should be doing. And so a lot of these teams, either I, you know, I, I worked with them and, and, gave them some advice around hiring somebody to actually be their 401k person. Or in some cases, we actually took over the relationship for them on the 401k side. So I, I don't know if that answered your question other than I think I see it in the small plan market. You you definitely, I, I think as you see more and more litigation going on, the liability is too great to be doing that directly. And so is, is this like five to 10 million range? It sounds like is, is sort of the fuzzy zone. If you're under that, you're probably getting individually managed. If you're materially over that, you're probably, if you're not hiring a firm like yours, it's at least getting close and someone's probably having the conversation. Yeah. I would say 10 million and above for sure. Okay. That, like you said, five to 10 is probably a little fuzzy. Matter of fact, when the Department of Labor came out with the fiduciary rule, I actually met with the DOL. And even though I'm a fiduciary, I was I was concerned that if they made this too onerous on brokers, that brokers would get out of the business because they couldn't, you know, they their firm wouldn't allow them to be fiduciaries, and we'd have hundreds of thousands of small employers that had nobody to help them. So like my thing is like transparency and honesty is the most important piece, whether you're a broker or a fiduciary, just be transparent about it and disclose conflicts of interest. So, but I think in the smaller end of the market, that smaller end, definitely you see more people managing the assets. And so let me ask as well, what are the, like, what kinds of tools get used in your 401k round, like you talked about, you're building these IPSs, you're doing analysis and screening. Like, is this good old fashioned traditional Morningstar mm-hmm. style tools to do 
analysis and screening on mutual funds the same way that a lot of us have done it in the in the retail and wealth management space? Or are there more specific tools and platforms that a firm like yours uses in the in the 401k context? Yeah, so we subscribe to a service called RPAG or RPAG or Retirement Plan Advisory Group. I think in the industry, there's probably two main ones. So there's RPAG and there's FI360. We used FI360 early on. We migrated to RPAG probably about 10 years ago, just because we felt like it was more institutional. It uses Zephyr reporting as well as Morningstar data. So it's just a, it's a tool that we use to put our, you know, the funds through and we like the reporting aspect of it. I like the Zephyr reporting. I think clients understand a picture a little bit better than they do a lot of data. So it's got both. It's got a, you know, everybody's got a scorecard in our industry. So, you know, I think this scorecard is the one we like the best. So yeah, we don't, it's not homegrown. There are advisors out there that have their own homegrown kind of analysis tool. So far we, you know, we talk about it, but we don't feel like we, there's a need for it in our particular case. We haven't, we, we subscribe obviously to the, the monitoring criteria that this system uses. So. Interesting. And so that those sort of become the, the anchors, if you're going to be in this 401k space, and doing the fiduciary due diligence support, you need some kind of tools that can do the analysis, formulate them up to scorecards, be able to produce the the kinds of output that you need. Because this is fiduciary realms, like document process, document process, document process. Exactly. So you, yeah, the output matters in this context. And in RPAG and FI three sixty, or I guess just the kind of the go to platforms that are doing this widely now. Yeah, and I think Investnet also has the capability of of kind of creating some criteria. So I think there's three. But yeah, you know what I see sometimes when we're brought into a new opportunity where they were using an advisor that's not like us, the kind of the mistakes I see is they have they would come in and just say, hey, this fund has been performing in the top 50 percentile or like there's really no process or meat around it. And I think that's risky because then decisions look ad hoc because, right. you know, why did you replace that one fund when it was in the, you know, 70th percentile? But then you've got this one that's been there for, you know, two years in the 80th percentile. So like you have to have really, I think you need a system to help keep you straight. So talk to us about where you find plans that have tens of millions of dollars that you get a an opportunity to work with in the first place. You, you mentioned earlier, you, you get a lot of business responding to RFPs, responding requests for proposals. So a large plan is looking for someone to do their plan consulting. So they put a, an RFP, they put a request out and you respond and then get a, get a shot at the business. So like, where do these things go? Is, is there some master RFP <laughs> database where I can just go to a website and like troll all the inquiries and, and try to find the ones that I think I've got a shot at? Like where, <laughs> where do you even find the RFPs in the first place? Yeah. So the RFPs came later, and that's just, I think, because 
People use Google more than they ever did before. And because of some of the accolades that we've won, our name gets put on a list. And that's, you know, but I would say the first half of our career, we weren't getting those RFPs. We had to go out and get them, you know, the old fashioned way. Now, luckily, we're fortunate that we've got a name in nationally known that, you know, bigger companies may see lists and they see that we've won Retirement Plan Advisor of the Year or, you know, some of the things that we've won. So now that the firm has grown higher profile, like there's no magic database for RFPs. You get them because you've actually built enough of a brand that a large firm literally contacts you and says like, hey, we're doing an RFP. We've heard of you as a reputable provider. Would you like to submit for this? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, we do a lot on social media, or I should say, I do a lot on, on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I'm involved in a lot of the SHRM groups, you know, speaking engagements. What's SHRM? SHRM is Society of Human Resource Management. Okay. So, uh, so when, when you get hired by firms and you're supporting all of these HR and benefits folks, like SHRM is where they go. That's right. That's where they get okay. their designations and they have to get continuing ed. So I'll do, I'll do speaker events where they come in and get continuing ed. Okay. I'll write articles. I mean, it really, it's about creating a brand so that yeah. people kind of hear your name a little bit and, and they reach out to you. So, you know, I would say that we weren't this fortunate early on. Nobody knew who we were. Right, so right. we had to start from somewhere. And I would say, you know, I... I love, I love hunting. I mean, that's like my favorite thing to do. I love being on LinkedIn. I love seeing connections. I like to see how we're all connected. And I'm not afraid to ask people that I know to introduce me to somebody else because I'm very confident about the service that we provide. And I think we do a really good job. So I, I genuinely want everybody to know about it. So I do a lot of work on LinkedIn. I would say that's where I get a lot of my business. Fascinating. So I, there were a couple of things there that struck me. One, just the point you made, I'm, I'm very confident about the service we provide. So I genuinely want everybody to know about it. You know, I'll admit for me, this was one of my biggest challenges around business development. When I started my career, like, you know, they wind you up with, cold calling or some other prospecting process to send you out there to try to sell people and get them on board. And, and I knew deep down, I didn't actually know much. I mean, the, you don't <laughs> learn very much on a life and health exam in a, in a series six and 63. So, you know, I struggled a lot with business development early on. I think only later I did, I realized the, the reason was because I was so not confident that I actually was providing much of any value since I know I, since I knew I didn't knew very, know very much that it was really hard to tell people about what I did and certainly and try to solicit them because I, I think deep down I was kind of embarrassed about it. And then there's this point where that shifts and changes and you say, no, I'm, I'm really confident in what I do. Like I know what I do is good and valuable. And once you have that level of confidence, suddenly it becomes a lot easier to talk about what you do because like it's not to be prideful, but just you're genuinely proud of the work that you do and you know you help people. Why wouldn't you want to tell pretty much anybody you can? <laughs> right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, 
it's the one benefit too about getting older. I always say like when I was younger and and I used to be intimidated when I'd sit down with a CFO of a company and let's say I was 25 years old, 26 years old, and he might've been my age now, which is 50. And he was looking at me like, you're just a kid. How do you know this stuff? And I feel like I learned pretty quickly in the business, but now that I'm a little older, it's nice to be able to sit across the table from somebody that's similar age and not only not have to worry about that. Cause I, I do, I hired two people on our team that are in their twenties and they're super smart and they're, they're great individuals and they're, they're struggling sometimes with that whole issue of age, you know, trying to get that respect being 25 years old. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting past. I mean, for me, I at least I kind of found it was twofold. Part of it was you know, getting some of the industry designations, going and studying and learning. Because, you know, it, it, if I was going to be young, at least I could show I had some credentials and actually had spent some time learning and knew what the heck I was talking about. And and actually, for me, that that ultimately turned around to, well, if they're going to look at me and say, geez, he looks young because I looked pretty young in my 20s then like, I'm going to make it a good thing. Like, holy crap, look at how young that guy is. And he's got all this education and designations and degrees and credentials. Like, I, I, I think I tried to turn that from a weakness into a strength by saying, well, if you're going to look at me like a young kid, like I'm going to make you look at me like Wonder Kid. <laughs> Where like I'm, I'm, I'm just going to pile all this stuff up so you can say, wow, that guy's really knowledgeable for being so young. So at least if you got to acknowledge I, I'm young, you can you can give it to me in a good context. Yeah. I had a client say to me, and this doesn't have to do with age, but my personality, I'm I'm very I'm a very happy person and very, I would say, kind of passionate when I speak. And she said, you know, the first time I met you, Janya, I thought, like, oh, she's so nice and happy and bubbly. And I I have to admit, I, I was thinking, you're probably just one of those nice bubbly girls, but doesn't really maybe know a lot. And she said within like five or 10 minutes, she was like, whoa, wait a minute. You actually do know what you're talking about. So I, it's kind of fun. those impressions that people get of you, whether you're you know, a certain age or a certain personality, at the end of the day, you've got to learn your trade because that's going to, that's going to determine your success or not. Yeah. To, to me, it was... It's kind of a twofold of it, it was competency to actually know what the heck I was talking about. And then it was confidence that I believed in what I was doing and the value I was bringing the table enough to be able to talk about it. And, and at least for me, the competency was what drove the confidence. Like I, I could do it once I knew, once I knew that I knew what I was talking about. And I know there are other advisors that manage this differently. They're they're better at the proverbial fake it till you make it <laughs> version of this. So be confident and and later you can prove you actually knew what you were doing. And like I'm not trying to knock it. We get there in different ways, but that so didn't work for me. I had to I had to know that I knew what I was doing. I wasn't going to screw up clients in the first place. And it was the the competency that led to the confidence and then the confidence that suddenly made business development so much easier. Yeah. No, I, I can see. I would say I was probably the, I was the other version you mentioned. So I was probably the fake it till you make it. But I, I was kind of born with confidence. But I, I will say, <laughs> yeah, I would say, though, that one thing about myself and our team, the people that I hire, it's like we all follow, not to get all 
kind of mushy, but one thing about our team is we're doing things for the right reasons. We follow our heart. So even if I'm super confident or somebody on our team super confident, we know that they're doing the right. It's always about doing the right thing. And not just because we're fiduciaries, it's because that's in the interview process. We're always talking about, you know, what do you want to do this for? Like, we want people to be paid well, don't get me wrong, but we we really want to build an organization here that is making a difference in the world. So, so, so tell us then about your own path. Like, how did you end out in this realm of doing 401k plans and enjoying the hunt for giant 401k plan opportunities? Yeah. So I guess going back, so, you know, I went to college, I was a two sport division one athlete many years ago. My daughters always are like, mom, stop telling people that like, you're too old to talk about that. You were an athlete. I'm like, no, I mean, there is an athlete in here somewhere. <laughs> what were your sports? I played field hockey and lacrosse Okay. In at Hofstra in Long Island. So I went to college. I thought I was going to, I wanted to be a lobbyist or go to law school. I didn't take finance classes. Math was not my thing. So I was a double major in philosophy and political science. So I coached D1 lacrosse for a couple of years after I graduated, but basically got paid like $10,000 a season, had to wait tables. I was like, okay, this isn't going to work. So I... Actually, a friend of mine worked for ADP, the payroll company, and she said, I was actually studying for my LSATs, and I was a legal assistant at a law firm, and I was seeing all these lawyers come in. They were working 70 hours a week with, you know, at the time, it was probably maybe seventy five dollars or $100,000 worth of debt. It's probably double that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, wait a minute, you don't get to go and be like on LA law and be a litigator. Like I want to do that kind of stuff. And I found out that that ha- can happen, but it will take you 20 years to get there. So my friend said, Hey, you know, why don't you come and sell payroll services? And I'm thinking, what in the world does that mean? Like sell payroll? How do you sell payroll? You know, they paid like, I think at the law firm, I was getting like 17000 a year and ADP paid me twenty three. And I said, okay, oh, I'm in. That's a heck of yeah. a raise, yeah. <laughs> so never in a million years thought I'd go into sales at all. You know, it was a different world back then. I mean, now when I see what I go through with my children, you know, everything is studied and mapped out. Whereas back then you just kind of went with your gut. There was no internet. Like we didn't, you know, we just were like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So I worked for ADP for that first year as a payroll rep. And then the 401k division was just getting started. And the manager came down from New Jersey and I was, I had made president's club my first year, which is kind of not really very common. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Hey, you want to come sell 401k plans? And I really didn't even know what a 401k was. I'm just imagining your ADP manager's like, what are you doing poaching my top? Oh yeah. There was a little bit of that. Uh This guy though, that tapped me on the shoulder, he's still one of my best friends in the industry. He's at Empower now, but so he was really fun. And I just said, literally, I was like, well, would you be my boss? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And that's how my 401k world started. It wasn't planned out. 
But what was interesting, when I look back, like what kept me going, and this is going to sound really geeky, but I used to hate Fridays because that meant I didn't get to work for two days. Like, I know that I will say now at age 50, I'm starting to appreciate Fridays, (laughs) but it took a long time to get there. I, I really have always, I'm just fortunate. I always say, you know, I'm just lucky that I love what I do. And the biggest part about it, it was complex, you know, 401k. So I was at ADP, then I went to Fidelity and Fidelity's great, great company. If you're in the 401k space, that's where most people would go and never leave, right? Right. At the time when I decided to leave, I was actually the top rep in the country. And I remember resigning. And Ed Murphy, who was the president there, but now he's president at Empower, he called me and he said, listen, people like you don't leave. Like, what's going on? Because honestly, I was doing very well financially. And my friends and family thought I was crazy too. And I said, you know what? I'm not challenged. Like, I feel like I'm selling a box. Like, and the box is the same for everybody that wants to buy it. I want to go solve problems. And the way I felt I could solve problems was to be an independent advisor where clients could hire me and my team to help solve problems. And that's really how I... I'll tell you this is kind of crazy and I hope it's not true 10 years from now, but every time I've made a change, I've made a step back in my income. So Mm -hmm. I've never made the income I made when I left Fidelity and I'm not worried about it. Like to me, like, again, I know this sounds kind of mushy, but we're doing this for a different reason. And I believe that if you do good things, good things happen to you if you're following your heart. So And we've been fortunate. I mean, we grew this practice. So after Fidelity, I went to a regional firm out of Baltimore, which was multi-level. So it was health and welfare consulting. I came in to, to build the retirement plan consulting practice. And they also had a small wealth management team. And this is PSA Financial? Yes. Yeah. So I, you know, being a local Baltimore advisor myself, like PSA has always been out there for a long time is known as a very sizable firm in the industry and space. But I know like part of the thing for PSA, both, you know, the, the good and perhaps sometimes the frustration was, you know, Chip Lewis had kind of brought together this firm with all these different areas. Like he, he acquired like PNC insurers and HR consultants, employee benefits folks and, and a financial advisor division, like had all these different things. So you got lots of different synergies and you got lots of crossover, but it's also hard to not end out with a bunch of silos and challenges making everything work together. Yeah. So I think exactly that, the silo part, I think it's very hard for organizations to break through those silos because you can position to a client that, hey, we're going to be all things for you. We're going to help you with your health benefits. We're going to help you with your 401k. We're going to help you with your property casualty. But they're they're so niche in themselves. It's very hard. And I think there are firms out there that have done a good job as best they can breaking those silos. But I was over there and really, you know, I didn't own my own business. I didn't have full discretion to make decisions for our team. That's the trade-off when you're in a larger firm environment or resources, but not quite the same level of control. 
That's right. And, and, you know, just people kept coming up to me and saying, because we built a pretty big practice over there and people kept saying, why, why don't you just do this on your own? And I feel so strongly about our service model and what we're trying to do that I wanted to have control of that and to grow nationally. So I, you know, in the future, I'd love to have six to eight offices all over the country, because I think the space has the room for it. I think we're still a fairly new kind of niche, and I think there's still lots of opportunity for growth. So that's what we did. We, we you know, started our own firm and back to like, I think good things happen to good people. You know, it's it was amazing. It was very scary to kind of step off that cliff and say, okay, I'm going to start over again because for non-compete reasons, we had to start over Oh really? So you when when you broke away from PSA to go out on your own, like you had to start over. That's right. That's right. So we had to start over and you know, here I had two children, I'm divorced and but I never really was scared to be honest with you. I knew that what we were doing was right and I knew that what what we could be was was amazing. So that kept me going and like really neat things happen in that first year people were calling me like companies who I'd never met with were linking in with me and saying hey I've seen your name can you come in and talk to us like again I really think if you're following your calling and you're doing good things people will make sure you succeed and that's how you know we grew it to 3 billion in 3 years which was tiring and exhausting that's still a mind blowing number though like Oh yeah, and then we went independent, and then we got three billion in three years. Like, where does that come from again? Yeah, it just you know, it's one of those things you don't even know what's happening. Like Chad and I talk about it all the time. We're like, we're working twenty four seven. We're we're hiring people. I mean, we had to hire people. So over those years, we grew to thirteen people just in three and a half four years. We hired that many people and finding good people and just the interviewing process alone takes time. And, and, you know, we had some, some that didn't work out. That's probably a challenge of most business owners is, is finding good people. That would probably be my biggest challenge. I would say is finding that next best hire, you know, but yeah, no, I, I don't know where it all came from, Michael. It just kind of, we finally woke up one day and we looked back and we're like, wow, we've got 3 billion in assets now. Like I don't even know where to tell you it came from. <laughs> so, I mean, is this, is this mostly your hunting and, and going out on LinkedIn? Is this cause you'd actually already build a brand for yourself? So even when you went away from PSA, like the name on the business card changed, but your name was already out there. Yeah. Like, so we can't ignore that even when I was at the other firm, you know, I still, I had a personal brand, right? So I was always speaking, doing my involvement with Sherm, other things like that. So now you're right, like the business card just changed. That's really kind of it. But we also had kind of that monkey on our back. Like we had to move fast because we had to support myself and my partners to be able to put food on the table. Right. So we and and in the plan advisory business too, it's a slow process. I think from what I've seen on the wealth management side from my friends, not that that's not 
slow at times, but in the 401k space, it could take me a year to two years because it's a committee-driven decision. And then even once they hire you, we bill quarterly in arrears. So we're already, like, even if, you know what I mean? Like, we're six months out from getting paid on a client, even if they we start talking to them today. So there was a lot of that stress of, hey, we've got to. So it was just keeping my the fire going in every, touching all the different influence centers that I could, reaching out to people, asking us like, hey, telling them like, we're ready. You know, we'd love to to be introduced to somebody. So really having a network of people that will help you grow is where we got that business. And then it sounds like, and, and going fairly outbound on LinkedIn as well to drive that further. Yeah. I think, I mean, LinkedIn, people in my, our industry are will always say like, oh, you're so big on LinkedIn. You, I don't really do a whole lot on it, but nobody does anything. So I look like I do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, so what are you doing that's actually driving some results for you or, or creating positive outcomes? Well, I think, so I read articles. If I find something that's interesting, I share it, but not only share it, but I will speak into it in the post. I post it to groups. So not just my feed. I want to post that article to different groups on LinkedIn that might have people that would be interested in my services. And it's not going to happen overnight. I think that's, it's, people have to be patient. You have to build brand recognition and build that kind of, that you're somebody that they should turn to. And then also just, I take the approach, I pretty much link in with anyone I meet. I've met other people that say, oh, I only link in with people that I could know their name if I saw them. And that's fine. But for me, I'm about kind of making sure I cast that net as wide as possible. Now, some people I won't link in with, like, I'll look at their profile and... Well, there there are some people that are just like random sales pitches coming at you. Yeah. Or like they, you know, they're in an industry that's so off from ours. Like, but if there's some connection, maybe I will, because you never know how they could influence your your success. So... And so was it in the transition from PSA that you went to Hightower or was there an intermediate step between? No, I went straight from PSA to Hightower. Okay. And so that's, and so that's still where the, where the firm is parked now as you've grown, just as it turned out less from referrals from other Hightower advisors and more just the hustle of going out there and leveraging the personal brand you'd already built. Yeah. Cause as I mentioned, a lot of the Hightower teams, they, what we found were, they're much smaller plans. And so we have a couple of teams that we are their 401k team, but it's more the more local teams. There's just, it just didn't make sense to take over, to continue that model around the country. So. Yeah. So as you look back, what surprised you the most about just trying to build your own independent advisory business, having spent so much of your career in other large firm environments? Well, I'd say the biggest, the absolute biggest surprise, I don't know what if it was a surprise as much as I didn't think it through, was the brand. So 
I worked at ADP, the largest brand in payroll. I, I worked at Fidelity, the largest brand in the 401k business. And then, you know, PSA, large regional firm that you could point to a website and people are like, oh, I know who they are. And then now it's Jania. You know, it's our team, but nobody knows FPA, fiduciary plan advisors, right? Like it was, oh my gosh, I, I, I can never, I'll never forget the first few weeks when I was on, when we were on our own and I didn't have anything behind me. It was just me and Chad and we were out there talking to companies and basically just saying, I want you to hire me. It's not as much the firm, right? It becomes, it's, there's nothing behind me anymore. And that was the biggest, the scariest moment. But then again, once they start hiring you, that's back to that confidence thing. You start to realize like you do know a lot and you should you know, not be nervous about it. But that was probably the biggest shock is kind of, wait a minute, I don't have a big name behind me anymore. Are they going to want me? Yeah, it's it's a striking thing to me that, you know, frankly, a, a lot of advisors on the independent end have always been on the independent end and aren't used to what it's like having a big brand backing you and just how powerful that is. And then I see people on the other side that work in some big firms with big brands. And I think similarly underestimate people actually will hire you. Like if, when you're delivering value, yes, the big brand can help. But if you deliver value, people do hire you and stick with you. You do have to figure out how to communicate it and get it out there. They don't, your phone doesn't automatically ring. But I find it sort of striking on both ends that the independent advisors, I think, often really underestimate just how powerful big brands are. But some advisors with big brands overestimate how much you actually need that. Like, it does help, no question. But it's not as essential as I think sometimes people make it out for themselves. Yeah, and especially in this institutional space, you know, when a company is hiring you, because sometimes it, it goes through different levels before it's approved, and they don't really care as much who the person is they're they're all about brand buying you know right. so well, the the old the old famous saying in the technology world was no, no one got fired for buying ibm right so back in the back in uh, it's like the 70s and 80s when computers and personal commuting and computer consulting was getting going a lot of startups had trouble because they couldn't compete against ibm because ibm had such a brand that no one got fired for for picking ibm so it was always the safe choice for corporate enterprise buyers. And it made it really hard for anybody else to compete because people just bought the safe brand and sometimes didn't even look as much at the detail of the deliverables, not to bash IBM. They also had a good solution, but so did some others who couldn't get their foot in the door because you could get fired for the startup. Nobody got fired for picking IBM. Right. That's true. <laughs> and so how do you overcome that in an independent world. I, I have to imagine it still has to come up from time to time. Oh, yeah. And I would say because we're on that list where when you Google retirement plan advisor or top advisor, you know, hopefully our name will come up because we've made some, won some awards, but we're on that list with some very large national firms. And so, like for example, like we're close to four billion, we'll compete with business for business of a firm that might have a hundred and fifty billion. 
Right. You're, you're, you're large enough to be of critical mass. So you get a seat at the table now all of a sudden. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember exact statistics, but it was something like only 1% of the advisors in the country have more than a billion in assets under advisement in the plan space. So we're at close to four. But then if you look at that band of the one percenters, the there's a huge disparity. There's like a cluster of us that are in that like three to ten billion. And then it and then it jumps and it's like 70, 100, 150. Then you start getting into like the the national consulting firms like Mercer and Aon and such, which we compete with them. That's who we compete with. So to your to answer your question, I actually like when I like to compete against those big firms because our story is that we're, you know, we're the more boutique-y, hands-on mm. firm. Now, sometimes no matter what we say, it won't matter because the committee's going to, like to your point, nobody gets fired for hiring IBM. Nobody gets, you know, maybe nobody gets fired for hiring one of those big $100 billion firms. But if we can plant that seed to help kind of, Get, help them understand that we want to be different and that we don't want to be that big. And when I mentioned that I want to grow nationally, I don't want to necessarily grow to 100, 100 billion. I would love to have, you know, six or so offices with, you know, three to 10 billion in assets. So, you know, that would be a good place to be. I think once you get to that really, that over 100 billion space, you start looking more like a one of the big national consulting firms, which is not what I want to do. So what was the low point for you on the journey? Uh, well, definitely starting FPA those first few months, you know, because of contractual and legal agreements, we weren't allowed to talk to certain clients. And that was probably the hardest for me because I go all in with my heart and and my brain. And because of legal reasons, I couldn't explain to people why we did what we did. And that was hard. But there's nothing you can do about that. The the law is the law. So that would probably be the lowest. But everyone that knows me knows I, I kind of hum at a pretty high, happy range. So my low is probably most people's average. <laughs> so well, and I'm just struck. I mean, most people I know, if faced with, you can go independent, but you have to walk away from all your clients and start over from scratch. I don't know of very many advisors who do that ever. And and frankly, most of the ones that do, I think, tend to be in their maybe 20s or early 30s. And they're like, yeah, I got, I got 30, 40 plus years. I'll, I'll keep going. You You were further in your career when you made the switch to go completely independent. Yeah. Matter of fact, that was the age thing I, I said to myself when I kind of took the deep breath to say, okay, let, I'm going to do this. I said, I can't let another year go by. I'm not going to have the energy to do this. Like, mm -hmm. so, I, and I was still on the later end. Right. But, and I've had friends in the industry call me for advice that maybe wanted to do something like what, what we did. And, I don't sugarcoat it. I tell them it's extremely difficult to kind of break away and start over. But it was, you know, luckily I have good partners. We do have a, two other financial partners that helped support us to so that we could at least keep lights on. 
but yeah, I mean, we're, we're out of the red we have been and things have been great, but it was scary. But I do believe that, you know, the, where you grow is when, where you feel uncomfortable. And, and I could have sat back and just stayed where we were, but I wouldn't have been challenged. I can't be happy that way. So thankfully, Chad, who's my business partner, we're completely opposites of each other. He's probably more like you, Michael. He's, he's a CFA and he's analytical and he's, you know, he, he's behind me making sure like everything's getting executed. I'm kind of the big picture, you know, Hey, we can do this. We wouldn't have been able to do it without each other though. I would say that. Yeah. I, those combinations of you know, people who have the vision and people who are strong in the execution. You know, there's this, I think, idea out there in entrepreneurial world that like there are people who are just lone wolves that have all these skill sets and bring it all together and make it all happen. But the truth for most businesses is the the and startups is the they tend to be duos, right? Because the if you're str- if you're that strong in the execution skill set you often need someone to compliment you on the vision side. And if you're that strong on the vision side, you need someone to compliment you on the execution side. And, you know, two superheroes often works better than one jack of all (laughs) trades. Yeah. And, and I'm just the one that's out there on social media and in the press and Chad tends to like to kind of fly under the radar more, but he is equally as, as important to our firm's success. So you've talked about the dynamics of sort of transitioning independent and, and and making the leap there. But I'm also just wondering what your advice would be more broadly for advisors thinking about coming into the 401k space today. Maybe you're particularly all those firms that are doing some wealth management stuff already and are thinking, like, should I be doing 401k plans as well? Yeah, I mean I- – I've heard some of, some of my peers that also have wealth management attached to their plan advisory business, they generate a lot of opportunities. So I would say, you know, if you like the wealth, if you're in the wealth management space and, and you want to grow that, one way to grow it is to get into the 401k space, but you got to do it with, you know, mindfully and on purpose, not by accident. Which Which means what for you? Like what? What do you have to do if you're going to launch 401k and actually do it right? As yeah. Well? So you, you got to take the time to learn the business, whether, you know, NAPA, which is our industry, has a lot of training courses. So that's National Association of Plan Advisors. The parent company is ARA, which is American Retirement Association. I happen to, I just stepped into the president's role of NAPA, but under that there, we have does, we have courses that people can take, advisors can take to get designations to learn more about the business, but nothing really will help them learn more than just going out there. And if you can align yourself with somebody that's already got, you know, the know-how, I've got two younger advisors on our team and all they do is shadow me. They're you know, one studying for a CFP, but also taking some of these courses like the CPFA, which is the Certified Plan Fiduciary Advisor. And so he's trying to learn that business. But what I mean by being doing it on purpose is if you want to grow your wealth management business through the plan advisory space, you know, don't just wait for the leads to come. So if you, for example, you have a 401k client, 
do on-site one-on-one meetings, provide services that would give you access to those individuals, and then do a good job, right? Like be transparent, make sure you're not trying to sell them things that they don't need, because that's the best way to get fired. But if you're doing the right thing, I think I know a, a team in Salt Lake City who he just started doing wealth management. He's very similar to our size and the plan advisory space, same size team. And three years ago, he kind of opened his doors to wealth management. And he's got $200 million in, in wealth management assets that he's gotten strictly from the 401k business. That's a big crossover. I don't know exactly how good that is. It sounds good to me. You're in wealth management or you talk about this, but he's, and he told me, Janya, this was like, people were begging us to help them. And, and I kind of see why in the 401k space more are doing this because they get to know the 401k advisor and then the end the employee says, Hey, well, you know, I'm retiring or I inherited this money I trust you already. Can you help me? And for years, many of us said, you know, no, we only do plan advisory, but we give out like a questionnaire that tells people how, what questions to ask somebody before they hire them. So we're educating them. My friend in Salt Lake, he's actually moved the needle more. And he said, we're just doing a continuation and 200 million in three years. Wow. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the things we long observe is just the word success means different things to different people. And so, you know, I'm fascinated by your story. Like you've had, frankly, multiple different successful career and business arcs, like you know, building an ADP, building to the top of the, the team at Fidelity, then going over to PSA and building there, then starting from scratch once more and and building on your own for for FPA. And as you noted, like and still not necessarily back to the income peak that you had at Fidelity. So like clearly this isn't solely an income driver for you. And and so I'm just wondering, like, how do you define success for yourself? I would say success for myself is having happy clients. I mean, being admired and trusted by the clients that we serve, it has, I actually don't really look at our P&L very much. Chad does, <laughs> you know, he's looking at the revenue. Do it. Our, us, us nerdy number people will do that part. That's right. Yeah. I, I literally like, it's just not me. It's all about making sure, you know, not, I can't, I know. I've said this a few times, but it's helping working America feel less stressed, whether it's our clients, you know, we fill out forms for them, we make their lives easier. And I, when they send an email to us or they're our raving fan, that's when I know we've hit success, not by the revenue that we produce. Well, I love it. I, I'm curious to see where it goes for you from here, since it obviously happens to also be producing a wee bit of revenue with <laughs> three or four billion dollars of of four hundred one k plan growth in just a couple of years. So I'm I'm excited to see where it goes for you next. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate our our discussion today. Absolutely. Thank you, Jania, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.